Rising. I'm joining you here from Vermont. Emily is in Washington, D.C. Emily, how's the weather down there? It's a morning show. You got to kick it off by talking about the weather. That's what they do. <laughs> it's, it's not Vermont. I'll tell you that. <laughs> it's not quite as nice as what I'm sure you have uh, going on up there. <laughs> it's, it's lovely up here, despite Joe Manchin's best efforts to destroy the earth. Uh, so a little later today, we're going to talk lovely about. For now. Uh, yes, for now. For now. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, a big scoop from my colleague Ken Klippenstein. We'll talk about that a little bit later. We'll talk about the uh, the ten year old rape victim. That's gonna we're gonna talk about that later in the show. We're gonna have on Brandy Calvert, who is a, a Kansas pro choice activist who I profiled back in 2017 because she got she got involved in politics really only because Trump won, and she's kind of the flip side of that that movement. She'll be on later to talk about this amendment uh, to ban abortion in Kansas. We're going to have Sam Vidalding on, who's a uh, GOP lobbyist who wrote an interesting memo to clients uh, this week, warning them that if they were engaging in any wokeness, uh, the House Republicans were going to come for them once they tackle the House majority. What else we got? Well, we also have locomotive engineer and former Iowa State Representative Jeff Kurtz and editor-in-chief of the Real News Network, Max Alvarez, on the show today, and then journalist at Mint Press News, Dan Cohen is joining us. So we're pretty packed, but we're also covering, I think, a lot of things uh, the media is missing. So I'm excited for that, Ryan. Um, and you are particularly excited, uh, as you just previewed earlier in our, our opening here, to dig into the news that was broke by the Washington Post just last night uh, by Jeff Stein and his colleague um, that Joe Manchin isn't interested in supporting a new package. Ryan, tell us what happened. Right. So after he pulled out of Build Back Better in December and said he was done, you went from these this kind of minute to minute incremental coverage of the, the ins and outs to basically a blackout uh, as the negotiations took place directly between you know Schumer and Manchin and the White House and Manchin, hoping that they could piece back together something that Manchin kept laying out. He, he was laying out exactly what he said he would do. He wanted higher taxes on the, the richest people and on uh, the, big, the biggest corporations, rolling back a little bit of the Trump tax cuts. He wanted half of that to go toward deficit reduction and other kind of inflation fighting measures. He also wanted to fight inflation by, in, by investing in, in clean energy and in dirty energy. He wanted to make sure that it was across the board. You put more government money into energy, energy prices uh, can, can come down. And he was going to pay for a lot of that by another deflationary measure, which was going to uh, allow Medicare to negotiate for prescription drug prices. So that was that was the contours of the package that Manchin said he was OK with. Manchin was lying. Like, I don't think he was ever OK with this or hmm. he just doesn't know what he's OK with. So last night he said, actually, all of these things that I've agreed to in detail, because Ron Wyden, head of the Finance Committee, said the climate sections had had been had been nailed down like back and forth with Manchin, like they had agreed to what they had agreed to. He says, actually, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to support any tax cut, any tax hikes on anybody rich, the richest of the rich or any uh, corporate in corporate tax hikes. And I'm not going to do any climate or energy spending. The only things I will do uh, are allow Medicare to negotiate uh, for, for lower prices for a few drugs. People are going to be furious when they find out how, how few it is. It might end up being just a couple dozen. And we're going to use some of those savings for deficit reduction and to extend subsidies for Obamacare that are about to expire. So if, you, so if you're 
in this category of a couple million people who are about to see premium incre increases on Obamacare, your premiums would stay the same. And if you're somebody who pays too much for prescription drugs, maybe at some point in the future, if your drug is on the list, you might get a slight discount for that. So that's where Mansion is now. Yeah, and I continue to think that Manchin is taking arrows for other members of the Senate that might not have vocalized how difficult this vote would be for them, um, but it ultimately would be more difficult for them than they've uh, admitted or conceded in negotiations. They're negotiating specifically with Manchin in the same way that with the tax bill, it was like, we specifically have to bring Manchin in, we specifically have to bring cinema into these conversations, which is how, how the whole Manchinema type, uh, the, the legend was born. Um, but I, I wonder, Ryan, what, how, how true you think that is um, from your sort of sourcing and, and your pulse, your finger on the pulse of the, the Democratic Party on Capitol Hill. Would this be a tough vote for anybody else? I mean, in a year ago, I think is very different than right now because inflation, the consumer price index just spiked 9.1%. That is the biggest spike since 1981, 40 years. Um, that's a, that makes, whether you think this makes that worse, and I, I think it would, but whether or not you agree with that, it definitely makes the vote more difficult, I would think. Obviously, on the flip side, it's a midterm year, and Democrats seem to believe this is the thing they need to hold up and say, we we can still do things. We can still legislate. We can still govern. We still have the will to govern and, and make things better. Um, but in this inflationary environment, I'm wondering if you think that it, it really is just Mansion. I, I think on the inflation question, it was it was just it was just Mansion. And there's an irony there that you know around July 1st, you started seeing because of this Fed uh, uh, massive uh, uh, interest rate hike, you started seeing oil futures collapse. And you started seeing gas prices coming down all across the country. So in the two weeks after June 30th, the, the, that 9.1%, because energy is the main driver of this inflation right now, came way down. And so we're in this, we're in this just absolutely absurd situation where a decision is being made in, in the middle of, of July based on a number that came out on June 30th, even though if they had the, if they put in the two weeks since then, the number would be different and you wouldn't have the headlines like a 40 year thing. But I think it's only mansion on the inflation question here because all of the spending here, uh, which is only half of the package, the rest is deficit reduction, mm -hmm. goes toward driving prices down, driving fossil fuel prices down and, and, and driving clean energy prices down. And by investing in clean energy over the long term, then you, you, uh, you, know, you reduce the pressure uh, on, of demand on fossil fuel prices so that long term you have lower energy prices and so the idea that you would as a people as a society look at gas prices and oil prices as high as they are and say well the thing that we need to do as a society is make sure that there is no competitor to these prices that are so high for us and are causing so much pain for us we've got to just let this industry continue uh, until it, you know it sucked out every every drop of oil from around the earth, and that's before we've even gotten to, to climate change. And you know, I, I'm I'm curious for your take on this because I can't quite get my head into a place where this is okay. Like the Hoover Hoover Dam has a couple years left before it perhaps is no longer functional because of the water level over there. Uh, Spain right now is over 105 degrees, and this heat wave is supposed to uh, run across. Europe last for maybe a month and go all the way uh, to Croatia. India, it was over 120 degrees. Uh, there's a, what's called a flash drought here in the, in the south and all the way up into New England. 
Uh, you have massive drought conditions over over in the south. You've got a heat wave in Texas that is knocking the power grid out. So help me understand, because it, it is Manchin, but it's also Manchin plus 50 Republicans in the Senate who are like, you know what? I think we're good. I think this is OK. Like, how do you get how do you get there? Well, and, and a couple things. I mean, so the first part of that, I would say inflation is talking about the long term of this from a political perspective. And I'm not arguing from a moral perspective, just from, from the perspective of politicians like Joe Manchin. Right. That's what who I'm would curious say, about. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Who would say, like, why am I why would I in the short term um, want to take a vote on something that it, our constituents are going to be told is raising the prices of consumer goods, government spending brings up other prices. And maybe if it's not just energy, it's going to go into other places and then the democrat the democratic party gets blamed for it higher prices and that's the, sh the blame has been shifted to us and pretty squarely because we all took a vote on this piece of legislation. On the other question, I think everything you just outlined is sort of, first of all, Texas and California to some extent, when there are these sort of cronyist, sloppy shifts to new energy, I think that scares off a lot of Republicans until they realize that there might be profit to be made for it, from it. Then you sometimes see them uh, get on board with these things. Um, you Remember, John Boehner is, is now lobbying on behalf of the marijuana mm -hmm. industry. but. <laughs> <laughs> just that one example. Yeah. But secondly, also the, the vast scope of everything you just outlined is why I think a piece of legislation like this, was it whittled down to like one trillion in spending? Th this one that they yeah, were working it been, with? Right. And it would have been about 550 billion in, in climate, which though gets multiplied because there's so much clean tech investment on, in the private sector that just needs a little bit of uh, boost so that they can have some certainty that Okay, we're not going to die in the first year here. We need some, you know, we need these tax credits to last like five years, ten years, you know, whatever it's going to be, so that we can take uh, some risks that might actually pay off. So it's five hundred billion, but you know, the way that the system works, that could end up being several trillion. Yeah, I think so. Ron Wyden's statement said uh, that this is our last chance to prevent the most catastrophic and costly effects of climate change. That I, I, that's an, a, an, an, or a, an, a perspective on this that I don't understand because of exactly everything you just laid out, the vast sort of global scope of this problem, the idea that this $1 trillion at most package from the United States Senate um, is, is the last chance to prevent the most catastrophic effects of climate change. I think the best chance is addressing this in, in India and China and continuing to do better here. There's no question about it. But I think the hesitance from Republicans and Democrats, like moderate Democrats like Manchin, is we can do as much as we want to here. We can make our people you know, suffer economically in the short term to some degree. We can try to mitigate that. But if we don't bring India and China substantially on board and other countries as well, then it's all for naught. And we're going to get blamed for that, too. So it, I, I think it, it, it's the, the vast global scope is actually part of the, that calculus, I think. Well, China's you know well ahead of us when it comes to clean technology at this point, and it, and is strategically kind of locking down the the components for the renewable in, uh, industry, both wind and solar, and we're just sitting back and allowing that to happen. So, it, it, it looking at it country by country and kind of consumer by consumer goes back to the the idea that like if we all just take personal responsibility, if we all just recycle that this will you know, work itself out. This is actually a, a global systemic problem. And there are you know, two major leaders in, of the global system right now, where there is, there is a major leader, that is the United States, we are the, the global superpower, and there's a rising power in China. And so for the biggest 
dog, you know, kind of in, in the yard to say, well, we're, we're not going to do anything until the, this the poodle over here does does something like like India. India does. India can't afford to kind of turn around the world when it comes to uh, when it comes to climate change. But the United States is the one that really has to lead the way. And so I think what's unspoken about what Ron Wyden's prediction there is that they expect that they're going to lose either the House or the Senate or both. And then, you know, they don't, they don't have any sense of when they're going to get a path back. You know, the last time they lost it in 1994, they didn't, they didn't come back until 2006. And so that by, you know, 12 years from now, the type of investment that would be needed to stave off, uh, uh, you know, apocalypse is, you know, nowhere near $550 billion, like $550 billion, you know, w multiplied through the private sector, you know, potentially can, you know, have our uh, emissions over the over the next decade, like that's like climate scientists and energy experts say that that is a realistic possibility. And if that happens, and if then you have the kind of exponential technological improvements that come from that investment, you get a you get a head start on it. Now, Manchin got to the Senate, if you remember, running an ad in 2010 where he took a rifle and put a bullet through the last attempt to deal with climate change. So this is something that Manchin has been, you know had his sights on, you know, the, the entire time. Yeah, and I mean, I think a whole lot of his voters, uh, it's probably a really visceral issue, too, and that speaks to whatever consultants came up with the that, the ad that you're referring to, which is really something uh, folks... Yeah, and all, it all goes back to gas prices. They say, if, if, you do, if you try to address climate change, you're going to be paying $4 at the pump. Well, we didn't do anything about climate change in 2010, and congratulations, it's 5 and $6. So here, yeah. So it's, you know, it, it's... It's it's kind of collective suicide, but you know the sen the Senate is the Senate. The Senate is the Senate. That that we can definitely agree on. <laughs> um, the Senate is the Senate. This looks like it's it's scuttled. I actually uh, I actually think maybe they'll work maybe they'll work on something even smaller than this. Um, we'll see. But it seems like like you're right, Ryan. The Senate is going to Senate. Yeah, and and maybe they'll do something on prescription drug prices, right. and then when people find out what, what they're actually getting for that and how easily it's going to be gained by big pharma, uh, there'll just be more rage out there. There sure will. Well, we will have more rising for you right after this. Emily, what's on your radar? Well, uh, we've covered the horrific story about a pregnant 10-year-old rape victim twice on Rising this week, first to question if the original Indie Star report was a hoax, then to concede it appeared to be very real. So why bring it up a third time? Well, first, we continue to get new information on the story. Second, it illustrates precisely why the media can never, ever punt on corroborating single-source stories, period. I said right here yesterday that I've been wrong before and I will surely be wrong again. That much I can promise. Thankfully, nothing I said on our first story was factually incorrect, but my suggestion that bad reporting in this case meant the story was likely false turned out to be wrong. I did say the doctor heard about the girl's story secondhand, which we now know is not true because we know she later performed the abortion herself, although that wasn't clear from the original piece, which just said the girl went to her for, quote, care. But when we went to air, here's what we knew. The story had a single source. Every major city in Ohio told the Washington Post they had no record of this and reporting would be mandatory because of their laws. The Ohio Attorney General said he had no record of this. The Indy Star would not say if it even contacted law enforcement. 
We still don't know if that's true, and the story, the original story, still has no comment or no indication that comment was sought from law enforcement, which is highly unusual for a story like this. There's just no way around it. That is reckless journalism, and it needs to be called out precisely to avoid this truly awful cycle we're stuck in right now. It's always been true that this girl's story is plausible. Sadly, the reporting needed to be questioned. It needed to be because it was so flawed, which opened up a hyperpartisan debate over whether this particular incident was real, meaning the tragedy turned into a football that distracted from the real question of whether the story represents a broader reality. Now, unlike some others here on Rising, we were clear from the very beginning whether the story is true, it does in fact, in fact, represent a broader reality. In 2020, 52 girls under the age of 15 or 15 and under received abortions in Ohio. In the preceding years, that number was even higher. Red state anti-abortion laws in the post-Roe world will confront these horrific cases. There is no question about it. But again, here's where the Indy Star's reporting did everyone a serious disservice. In Ohio, a pregnant 10-year-old would almost certainly qualify for a medical exemption to their abortion law, meaning the girl would not have had to cross state lines into Indiana. That was the whole point of the story in the Indy Star but that was not mentioned or addressed. Now, we actually still don't know if that's what happened in this case. We also don't know if she was, quote, forced to go to Indiana for the abortion, as President Biden said, and the Indy Star story implied. Ohio law is ambiguous on that question, although the attorney general did say a 10-year-old would likely qualify, but litigating that during a pregnancy is enormously difficult because time is obviously of the essence for people's health. But the fact remains, we don't actually know the story actually reflected on problems with Ohio's law, which was what the Indy Star implied. Now, I happen to be against abortion, and I happen to believe this is a hard truth other people against abortion, lawmakers in particular, need to confront clearly and need to deal with. Pregnancies in young girls almost certainly medically endanger their lives, so the law should be crystal clear on what's legal if that's the case. And on top of that, the right shouldn't pretend as though these cases aren't going to happen. They absolutely are. They are real. In another strange turn of events yesterday, it should also be noted that the girl's mother told Telemundo in a very bizarre interview that, quote, everything they're saying against him, the man uh, who has apparently confessed to this, is a lie. Now, in reference to that man, uh, who, who, again, law enforcement says has actually confessed to these heinous crimes against her daughter, that's really hard to believe. But the one thing we do know about him is that he's an undocumented immigrant. But you wouldn't actually know that if you read the update in Reuters and NBC News and ABC News, at least as of last night. That's hardly the most important aspect of this case. Research suggests illegal immigrants commit violent crimes at a lower rate than American citizens, although it's very difficult to screen for people's criminal pasts when they're coming in without any screening. But it's obviously a relevant and newsworthy fact about the man who, again, has confessed to this crime. The media's omission of that fact doesn't excuse calling the original story a lie, like Jim Jordan did, fanciful, like the Wall Street Journal editorial board did, or even assuming it was likely untrue, like I did. But it does underscore why this horrible story is an important example of media failure. Trust in media is at record low levels, and sadly, that is exactly where it should be. Publishing explosive stories based on one person with zero input from law enforcement or any additional corroboration is why so many legacy media stories 
ultimately do actually turn out to be false. Local media has been gutted by the Facebook era and they're short on resources. The size of the media in general shrunk dramatically and that happened very fast. And the industry hasn't recovered from losing all of these additional layers of editorial oversight, fact checking and more. Plus reporters are now more ideological and more comfortable letting their ideological leanings direct their reporting. That's how they end up relying on one source and using language that plays a little bit fast and loose. It's true, media critics get things wrong. Of course that's true. But nobody should be fooled into thinking this discredits media critics' central point when it actually confirms it. Ideology and cultural changes have made reporters way too comfortable with insufficient journalism. This is a broken clock being right twice a day. It's frustrating to watch people pile on media critics for criticizing the story when the criticism was warranted and when many of those people taking a victory lap right now are missing the forest for the trees. The legacy media got Hunter Biden's laptop wrong, it got the Russia hoax wrong, it got Covington Catholic wrong, it got Jesse Smollett wrong, it got COVID wrong, and I could just keep on going. They won't ever admit it. They won't change or learn. They are peddling more disinformation than your weird cousin's Facebook feed. So don't let them use this example to discredit all of their critics because that's exactly what they want and it's exactly how they'll keep lowering their standards. So we have to repeat these awful national rigmaroles over and over and that's not a deflection. I was wrong, I'll say it, but we can walk and we can chew gum at the same time, conceding what we got wrong without patting people on the back who don't deserve it. Ryan, I was thinking this morning that this mother has national news, international news, Telemundo, knocking on her door um, because the original story, if this original story had been corroborated, had said we reached out to law enforcement, enforcement, et cetera, et cetera, if it had done all of that, if they had waited to go to print before they heard back, I don't even know what their process was like with law enforcement, but we knew, we know that law enforcement had no voice in the story. That wouldn't happen. This family would still have their privacy. Um, and instead, because the story ended up turning into to, to this controversy because that original report was insufficient, it's just it's frustrating. And uh, I'm, I'm curious for your thoughts on it. I mean, I think it is true that if the uh, story had not been called into question, that the media probably would not have hunted down the family. But I also think that it's true that law enforcement wouldn't have been any help to the original Indie Star reporter because the attorney general of Ohio, uh, the Washington Post, you know, all of these different you know, media resources were put into trying to find somebody in Ohio on the law enforcement side who knew something about this story and they 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 came up empty. So the but the reporter did have a a direct firsthand source, you know, the the actual abortion care provider. And I feel like a lot of the conservative media kind of got thrown off the story because the way it was written in the Indy Star, it said the child ended up in uh, Dr. Bernard's care. Right. And yeah. it's hard I think on, on the left, we were like, abortion care is health care. That's health care. They wound up in that person's care. That's, that's an interview with the abortion provider. But I think on the right, because it's so caught up in separating it from health care, that it was hard for them to see. I'm curious if that was part of, part of maybe your reading of the story, too. You're like, no, this is, you're, we must be hearing from an activist here. We're not hearing directly you know, from the person. Now, I think that any star reporter could have also tried to call the Ohio doctor who had made the referral. You know, there are all types of HIPAA, HIPAA issues that are going to make that difficult. But that that's certainly one that they could have tried. They could have tried to confirm with the mother. But I can understand from the reporter's perspective, they had the abortion provider 
you know, on the record, you know, by name. Well, so so there's that, um, and that's absolutely true. But when you say into her care, that doesn't necessarily mean abortion. That's my my reading of the situation was that that's so open ended. That could mean counseling. It could mean pre abortion counseling. It could mean a lot of different things. It could mean that she actually never got there because the way the story was worded was that it said off she went to Indiana to Bernard's care. I don't know that that had actually happened yet. You know, it, it actually the way that it's worded is really vague. There's nothing that says they tried to contact law enforcement in the story. And on top of that, there's a document that Politico got, um, which is the file uh, Bernard had to give to Indiana to show that she had performed this abortion. And that, that's a, another thing that I, I would imagine and I would hope that the Indy Star had looked for or had tried to get any other corroboration. It's just you cannot rely on a single source on stories that are this serious and this explosive. And I get I think you're right. It would have been really hard. Part of the reason The Washington Post called every single city in Ohio they had actually reached out. Glenn Kessler reached out to the county office where the records ultimately were, and they didn't hear back from them. Um, so I, I think it would have been extremely difficult. But that then becomes part of the story. You haven't been able to hear back from law enforcement. If and you know that, both of us know right. that. You you do put that in the story. So again, this isn't to deflect because you know right away when the story came out, I was wrong to think it was it was likely false. But I said the reality here is that it does happen. And so there's no reason to deflect from that. That's absolutely true. It absolutely happens. And red state right. anti-abortion laws need to be completely clear about it. But at the same time, Gannett Papers need to do, that's the parent company. It owns a lot of local newspapers. I think this is a real lesson um, that, you know, a, a, an anecdote at the top of an Indianapolis Star right. story can get to the president and it can spiral into something. And so it does need to be corroborated. Right. And particularly with the lack of trust and with the mistakes that have been made, these reporters need to kind of show their work. And another thing you can do if you can't get another source, what you can do is you can ask the provider herself. Can you show us some calendar records, some emails, some documents that, you know, contemporaneously show this? Now, real quickly, though, I wanted to look look at the question of whether this was legal in Ohio. Mm-hmm. And so if, if you remember, you know, when when Roe was overturned, I talked I talked about the case, the, the cases of the two young women who died in Poland yes. uh, because they didn't move. You know, the doctors didn't move fast enough on ectopic pregnancies. I don't remember all of the different details. They felt like the Polish, the new Polish anti-abortion law barred them from performing the procedure that they need that they needed to do to save this person's life. Hundreds of thousands of people, you know, poured into the streets, you know, threat threatening the stability of the government and pushing for reforms of the abortion law. The government's response was identical to this response. And I and I predicted that this would be what would happen, that you're going to have people die. And then after they die, you're going to have government officials say, well, actually, technically, you know, if you look at this portion of the law, it's plausible that they the doctor could have performed this life saving procedure right. and it might have been legal. Right. That, that okay, maybe that's all true. This might could have all the vagaries are don't take into account the reality of the way that medicine is practiced in the United States. If 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 they believe that there's a good chance that it's illegal, they're not going to do it. And if the attorney general can't even say say firmly, oh, no, this was legal, then you're going to have doctors who are just not going to perform these procedures. And then separately, if you have shut down all the clinics it doesn't really help to say 
well, we have a rape and incest exception for 10 year olds. Totally. And the 10 yeah. year olds like, great. Uh, I was, I was raped by my uncle. Uh, where can I go for this procedure? They're like, oh, well, there are no clinics left because you can't, you can't keep clinics alive without, uh, you know, if it's just 10 year old, uh, you know, rape and incest victims, like that's, that, th th that's not enough services to perform. And so, oh, there's nowhere for this to be performed. So legally, you would have been allowed to have this, but there's nobody who's able to perform it. And shutting all those clinics down, let's be honest, that's the goal of yep. these laws and this movement. Yeah, I don't disagree with that at all. And I don't disagree with the problems, about the problems with the law whatsoever. Um, but again, I think the Indy Star really needed to explain why this case study was a question of the law and get into that. And that actually makes for a better and more helpful story. Anyway, so, but, but to be clear, I, I agree. The, these laws need to be uh, seriously thought about uh, and, and seriously um, changed so that they are uh, in these situations that they are just um, and this is just an awful tragedy uh, just right and and the right can look at it from a pragmatic perspective if that's better for them because uh, they will they will get a not they will lose like yeah. you know you you cannot kill little girls no and have your it. policy re remain in place so if you if you, if you want to keep this draconian uh, anti-abortion uh, thing going uh, you can't you can't uh, you, you can't be so uh, uh, tough, you know, you can't kill little girls. That's you, basically a, a, a rule of life. You cannot be dismissive of the reality. And I, I think part of the right's reaction to the story was dismissive of, of the reality. No question about it. Ryan, I'm looking forward to what's on your radar next. What's on your radar today, Ryan? So my Intercept colleague, Ken Klippenstein, published a big story yesterday evening, which raises disturbing questions about the posture of the Secret Service when it comes to January 6th. Now, one reason that January 6th was merely an ugly riot and not ultimately a genuine threat to democracy on that day was that Trump and the rioters did not have the backing of the government's security services. Now, for any coup to be successful, you really do need some element of those security services, or you need hundreds of thousands or millions of people, not tens of thousands. Now, despite having appointed flunkies atop the Pentagon, he still couldn't count on their support as an institution, and the DC and Capitol Police were not under his command. But Ken's story raises some disturbing questions about the role and the loyalty of some of the leadership of the Secret Service. Now, to refresh your memory, the Secret Service whisked Vice President Mike Pence out of the Senate in, and into a nearby room. Now, its glass windows left it unprotected, and the head of his detail twice urged Pence to get into a caravan of vehicles and flee the Capitol. I'm not getting in that car, Tim, Pence said. He said, I trust you, Tim but you're not driving the car. If I get in that vehicle, you guys are taking off. I'm not getting in the car. Now, here's how a Pence aide talked about that moment. Did the vice president leave the Capitol complex during the attack? He did not. When we got down to the secure location, Secret Service directed us to get into the cars, um, which I did. Um, and then I noticed that the vice president had not. So I got out of the car that I had gotten, in, gotten into um, and I understood that the vice president had refused to get into uh, the car. Um, the, the head of his Secret Service detail, Tim, had said, I assure you we're not going to drive out of the building without your permission. And the vice president had said something to the effect of, Tim, I know you, I trust you, 
but you're not the one behind the wheel. And the vice president did not want to take any chance. So back at the White House, Tony Ornato told Keith Kellogg, who's a longtime Trump loyalist who was by then working for Pence, that the Secret Service was going to move Pence to Joint Base Andrews. Kellogg told him, you can't do that, Tony. Leave him where he's at. He's got a job to do. I know you guys too well. You'll fly him to Alaska if you have a chance to do it. Now, Renato denies that conversation, and he's denied other conversations he's been alleged to have. But it's worth noting that one of the reporters on the story, Carol Lenning, previously won a Pulitzer for her work on the Secret Service and also wrote a book on the Secret Service. Now, this is all critical because getting Pence out of the Capitol and out of Washington would have accomplished the task of delaying the certification of the election. It's unclear what would have happened next, but Trump's M.O. his entire life hasn't been to think six steps ahead. It's always been to just stay alive for one more day and hope for the best. So all this raises questions about whether someone in the Secret Service wanted Pence moved out of the Capitol for reasons that went beyond security. One way to answer that question would be to examine Secret Service messages from that day and the day before, and a Department of Homeland Security Inspector General asked to do just that. That's where Ken's scoop comes in. It turns out that the Secret Service erased text messages from January 5th and January 6th, 2021, according to a letter given to the January 6th committee and reviewed by Ken. The Secret Service claims that the text messages were lost as a result of a, quote, device replacement program. But the letter says the erasure took place after oversight officials requested the agency's electronic communications. And they also said, Emily, that even if they still had them, they wouldn't necessarily be able to turn them over to them. So when you hear this explanation that they reached out, they said, send us your send us the messages that you guys uh, swapped back and forth January 5th and 6th. And then later they write back and say, well, actually, after you asked for those, the darndest thing happened. A device replacement program wiped out the text messages from those particular days. Uh, where 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 what what do you think? What's what's the, s the smell test tell you here? So as somebody who thinks the the January 6th crisis was turned into a political football in a very irritating way that doesn't address the actual security concerns and has violated people's privacy, et cetera, this actually is very concerning because the point you made exactly at the beginning of your radar, this was not a coup because the military wasn't involved, because security services were not involved in, in a supportive way. There were reports originally from people who said they saw um, Capitol Police officers either aiding or sort of cheering on rioters or cheering on people who are at the very least trespassing. We still don't fully have more details or information on what that might have entailed. Um, and we still don't really know about some doors that were opened. And this, I think, is particularly interesting in that light. Now, that's not to say I think there was any coordinated effort by the Secret Service or the military to aid a coup. I don't think that's the case at all. I do suspect that probably in this situation, Secret Service has some messages uh, that were ranging from maybe supportive to joking or just unflattering. Um, and I don't mean supportive in like a formal sense. I just mean basically like 
pro-Trump, something like that, and mm -hmm. they're unflattering to the point where they don't want the public to see them. Now that this has been treated, as Steve Schmidt says, worse than as something that is worse than 9-11, when you have uh, people who are paid cable news talking heads saying that that was worse than 9-11, yeah, you don't want any sort of unflattering messages to uh, end up in the public. So I I'm sure that this is a nonsense excuse, or I'm guessing it's a nonsense excuse, I should say. It sure sounds like one. Um, but I think it is a legitimate line of inquiry, absolutely, and it's good reporting by Ken. Yeah, and, and it goes kind of to the politicization of everything. You know, one reason that our, our system of peaceful transfer of power and civilian control of the military, which are really, you know, two advents that America kind of brought into the world that because we have grown up with them, you know, for generations, I don't, I don't think we necessarily appreciate, you know, what not having yes. those things in place, you know, can do to a society. Uh, they've held up, you know, culturally because these institutions have really held themselves apart from politics. But something about the way that politics is has now become intertwined with culture uh, has allowed it to basically seep into every institution across the country. And once that completely takes over uh, both you know, the, the military and then the security services underneath them, uh, and you, you've already seen it in ICE, for instance, like, mm -hmm. you know, ICE has become thoroughly politicized. Uh, there was that scandal where this there was a, a Facebook group with thousands of uh, ICE officers, including like very top uh, leaders, just saying the most like, egregiously disgusting, like, like wretched stuff about, say, like Ocasio-Cortez or or even, and, you know, I think this is pre-Biden, but it would, it would be Biden today. You know, just, you know, extremely partisan in, in a way that if you had tried to do that in the 90s, mm -hmm. your colleagues, let alone your superiors, would have said, no, 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 like, we have a job to do. You know, we're, we're here to protect and serve. And I feel like that that's eroding as cultural politics are just uh, kind of uh, just, yeah, are just uh, dominating every institution. Yeah, and what's frustrating is the media's role in this because it, it's totally shifted the incentives for politicians. So instead of the incentives being on um, Republicans, for instance, this is a good, like actually January 6th is a really good example, uh, for the incentives on Republicans to say, like Ben Sass said, that Donald Trump is, quote, playing with fire. This, he, Sass said that after January 6th. I mean, he was against the sort of stop the steal nonsense um, from the beginning. But after January 6th, he said Donald Trump was playing with fire. Republicans should have incentives to, to say that, um, and Trump shouldn't have an incentive to sort of try to cling to his, his power by enabling the people who are talking about the voting machines and whatever else they're talking about, Italy, whatever weird conspiracy theories came in. Um, that The incentive shouldn't be on winking and nodding along with that because the media is is trying to has like perpetrated these huge conspiracy theory against Donald Trump and is wildly unfair to his voters, his supporters, and frankly anybody who has a different perspective on biology, whatever it is, um, it, it, it creates this weird incentive to sort of um, wink and, and nod and and not at, ever be on the side of the media. And on the left, the media will completely fan the flames and uh, allow 
them to politicize something like January 6th instead of asking uh, legitimately serious and important questions about their overreach, the subpoena power that they've exercised over the course of this committee, how cynical this is as a political tactic, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I actually always come back to, I mean, I'm, I think honestly the biggest problem in our politics is media, and this is a good illustration of that. And, and social media you know, yeah. circulating with media. And it, it does feel like a self-reinforcing death spiral. Um, but so ne up next, we're going to have uh, Sam Godaldig. He's a corporate lobbyist who is warning corporations that uh, House Republicans are coming for their wokeness. Stick around. So on August 2nd, Kansas voters will go to the polls in the first election nationally since the overturning of Roe v. Wade that puts abortion on the ballot. And we're joined now by Brandi Calvert from Wichita, Kansas. She's campaigning against this amendment. Brandi, thanks so much for joining us on Rising. Thank you both for having me. And so tell us what what specifically uh, will this amendment do? If passed, the amendment would allow a full abortion ban in uh, the state of Kansas. So starting from where, like where, like what are the details? Like starting from conception, starting from implantation, a couple weeks, just straight up it, ban. It can be a, it can be a, yeah, it can be a, a full ban. Um, Kansas is already heavily regulated as far as our uh, abortion um, regulations. Currently, I mean, currently, uh, abortions can't happen after 22 weeks of gestation, and this would be. I mean, it, there's no limit. They could ban it from conception, yeah. So I'm obviously on the anti-abortion side of this question, but I am curious if this issue you've noticed as sort of major steps in a red state like Kansas start to be taken. Um, ha have you noticed that this is energizing a lot of people? Ryan actually profiled you in a great story a few years back about how the Trump era really animated you and energized you and got you into activism. Um, have you noticed that post row, when some of these laws are in the ta on the table and are, are sort of like becoming a reality in different states, are, are you seeing a, a big uptick in energy among, uh, you know, activists basically on your side yeah it it has brought life to a whole new wave of, of activists but um, what's really interesting here is that it isn't just liberals or Democrats I mean this is bringing out um, Republicans libertarians it's activating everyone on this one issue that we typically wouldn't really come together on and that's interesting because Republicans it, it, like the suburban mom demographic is a really like has become a key one where Democrats and Republicans in the Trump era, Democrats are able to siphon away some support that typically would have gone to Republicans because a lot of educated women in suburbs were morally offended by Donald Trump. And it was extremely mm -hmm. animating for them. And they started voting Democrat. And I think Democrats see this issue as one that can do that as well. Has that been your experience just in these last few weeks as you're organizing um, and, and working on these issues in Kansas? I mean, we've really had, we've had everyone um, mm -hmm. kind of join and want to participate, want to help any way that they can. Of course, um, a lot of yeah, subor suburban moms, as you, <laughs> as you put it, uh, yes, they, they're coming out in full force, which is wonderful. What, what's the, what's the polling look like on this? And what are the kind of, 
uh, what are the pundits out there saying, and does it match what you're seeing on the ground? I I think it's really up in the air across the board. Um, for this primary, unaffiliated and independents can vote, which, I mean, that's a third of our voters in Kansas are unaffiliated um, independent voters. So that alone, um, I, I think we're going to see a massive turnout that we haven't seen before in a primary election. Can you tell us, and, and Ryan um, obviously wrote about this in his Intercept story, which, which folks should go read, but can you tell us a little bit more about your background? Because Ryan was talking to me how he was like, it's a little bit of the flip side of the coin, because you hear so much in the media about how the Trump era took you know certain people that may have been on the left and brought them over to the right and got them really energized and uh, you know animated to support Donald Trump, sort of a strange turn of affairs that became a kind of media fodder. But in, in your story, this era is a really what got you, you know, involved and activism and, and energized and working on these issues. Can you tell us a little bit about you know, why it was that you were so uh, eager to start getting involved um, in this moment? I think any time you witness injustice, it, uh, it motivates you to voice your opinion on what is and do what is right. Um, it wasn't a difficult choice to make to jump in and do what I could um, on the ground level here in Wichita. And luckily, thousands of other women just like me um, felt the, that very same way. And they also jumped right in. And But what's interesting is we have a whole new wave right now since Roe v. Wade has been overturned. There's a whole new wave of, of activists that are... Um, being born. I mean, they're registering voters, they're on the ground, they're doing the work, and it's really incredible. And yeah, and I'm curious about that, because to, to Emily's point, you were among kind of millions of, of mostly women who, you know, after the Trump election went from the sidelines, you know, and got heavily invested in 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 politics, you you helped or led the organizer of the Wichita Women's March, you're pushing, you know, hard all the way through the 2018 uh, midterms, I started feeling by the end of 2020, early 2021, a, a, an enormous amount of exhaustion uh, mm. from people, and uh, you know, cut through with a lot of cynicism as well. Like we fought, we fought this hard for all of this, and now Democrats in Washington aren't aren't fighting for mm -hmm. us. So how does that how does that exhaustion and that cynicism intersecting with with Roe being overturned is 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 the existential crisis enough to get? Is it getting people back? engaged despite Democratic Party fecklessness? Or is, mm -hmm. is that fecklessness still just kind of dissuading a decent number of people from from getting involved? Or does it, the fact that it's literally on the ballot, like you don't need the Democrats at all, like the words right. are on the ballot themselves is what's is what the difference is? Yeah, I mean, we, I think we're, we definitely are all a bit tired. But uh, we haven't lost energy, if, if anything, this has really energized us, given us a new breath of we have to get out there and do what we have to do, regardless of Democrats. I mean, uh, I think we can all agree at this point that <laughs> Democrat, that the fighting between Democrats and Republicans, they're using our freedoms as their weapons. 
it doesn't matter if I don't think it matters if um, it's Democrats showing up or Republicans showing up. We are showing up as the constituents. One thing from the sort of anti-abortion perspective um, that I'm curious about is whether, because a lot of people on the right think the the political handicap for the uh, pro-choice side is the sort of full abortion through full three trimesters all the way that like that is the liability um, on the left right now. So like the more you talk about abortion, actually it has this counterintuitive effect where because Democrats support that the, the the full three trimester position on abortion. It's a becomes a liability even if most Americans are supportive of first trimester abortion access. Um, do you have you sensed that? Have you found that it's difficult to talk about it in that context, or <laughs> is that something that you run into at all when you're organizing and and uh, talking to people on the ground? Not really. Our mentality and our goal here has been to. Not really what anyone's opinion on abortion are, but the fact that we can't allow government to control any more of our autonomy. We can't allow our government to uh, put mandates or bans on on our persons. Um, so it's been more of a medical freedom issue than what your personal opinions are on abortion. Uh, and last question, I know we, we've, we've got to run. Uh, what's your sense of what the energy has been on the right? Like, hmm. did Roe sap some of the energy because they're like, well, we won. We can relax now. Or are they in full, like, drive it to the wall mode? I, I think they thought it would be a really easy win. And I know they're getting very nervous now. We had a, a march last Saturday. Um, where a couple thousand people showed up. And there have been people protesting and rallying every day, every day since Roe was overturned, trying to get um, our constituents educated on the August 2nd ballot, trying to uh, fact check the misinformation that is currently out there regarding what this amendment would mean, what it currently means and what our laws currently are on abortion. Like I said, we already were heavily regulated um, as, uh, in the country. Kansas has very strict regulations on abortions here anyway. Um, so getting the word out, trying to educate people on August 2nd, what it will look like, what it means, and just getting them out to vote. We've seen a massive turnout. And again, it hasn't just been from Democrats. It has been... Um, I mean, the Kansas Libertarian Party has turned out and showed up in full force. We've had several Republicans show up um, and, and putting these signs in their yard. Hmm. So I think they were under the impression that it would be an easy win for them. However, Kansas is very supportive of medical freedom. Yeah, interesting. I wonder, I wonder if that the kind of whole vaccine debate is... Is kind of intersecting with it. Are you seeing that? I, I noticed your Definitely. use of the word mandates. Yeah, so it is like the yeah the hostility to the vaccine mandates is actually playing into the Definitely. people's posture toward this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I and I'm Republicans in Kansas are very supportive of medical freedom. So 
I don't think they're going to have the turnout on the Republican ticket for this primary that they thought they would. Um, because you can't really, you can't say we don't want a mandate, but we're okay with a ban. Super interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, no, I've seen the argument tried to be deployed from the other perspective. Like, how can you be for a, a vaccine mandate when you're also, uh, you know, you're okay, but, you know, you don't, you won't allow a mandate on abortion. It's interesting right. to see it working in the opposite direction. Yeah. Because many of us weren't supportive of a vaccine mandate for that right. very reason. So I know Kansas is a red state, but we're definitely a different shade of red than Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the country acknowledges. Mm. Especially, I think probably Beltway Media gets that wrong a lot. Brandy, thank you so much for your time. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much for having me. Of course. We'll be back with more Rising right after this. All right, so Tom Cotton appeared on CNBC's Squawk Box uh, yesterday and you know, ha- had a word of warning for Wall Street. Let's play a, a little bit of that clip here. Did the vice president leave the Capitol complex during the attack? He did not. When we got down to the secure location, Secret Service directed us to get into the cars, um, which I did. Um, and then I noticed that the vice president had not. So I got out of the car that I had gotten, in, gotten into, um, and I understood that the vice president had refused to get into uh, the car. Um, the, the, head of his Secret Service detail, Tim, had said, I assure you we're not going to drive out of the building without your permission. And the vice president had said something to the effect of, Tim, I know you, I trust you, but you're not the one behind the wheel. And the vice president did not want to take any chance that um, the world would see the vice president of the United States fleeing the United States Capitol. All right, we are joined now by Sam Gadaldig, a corporate lobbyist with the CGCN Group, who wrote a memo earlier this week that doesn't touch directly on this this particular uh, this particular theme, but generally about what it's going to look like for Wall Street, for corporate America, if House Republicans or when House Republicans you know take over the lower chamber come next January. So he writes, the dynamic is real and it will be felt in legislation passed and oversight hearings held, some of it directly targeting companies who are viewed as instigators and bullies in the culture wars. This posture will undoubtedly change how CEOs and trade associations interact with the new Republican majority and vice versa. Administration officials such as SEC Chair Gary Gensler will also feel burdened by Republican oversight with near continuous requests to testify in front of lawmakers in an attempt to wear them down and slow down Biden's regulatory efforts. And so, Sam, I think the the latter part of that, you know, trying to gum up the ability of regulators to regulate Wall Street, I think that's kind of that's what we would expect from a Republican majority taking over. The other part we might not expect. What do you what what do you mean that House Republicans are are ready to be players in this in this culture war and to involve corporate America in it? So we talked to a lot of Republicans on the Hill and the Senate staff, and um, the the old conventional wisdom is, you know, that the Republican Party is the party of the wealthy, country club Republicans, uh, supporters of the business community with, you know, kind of with with no regard to, uh, you know, some of some of the more uh, liberal leaning kind of policies that they might be pursuing. I, I just feel like that that whole 
that that whole narrative that Republicans are in lockstep with the business community and uh, they're they're representing these wealthier constituencies is outdated. And it started becoming outdated even pre Donald Trump's election in 2016. And uh, the transformation, I think, will be complete with this next election in the midterms. The, the coalition that they believe will bring them a majority in the House are pro-life voters, Second Amendment voters, uh, small businesses, not not large business and certainly not corporate executives in Chicago, New York, California and other major cities. Uh, parents that are concerned about, you know, the education system that their that their kids are, uh, you know, get, being pushed through. Uh, immigration uh, hardliners, people that want to secure the border, law enforcement, you know, kind of, you know, law and order type Republicans. And the newest part of that coalition is Hispanic voters, working class um, voters and, and um, working class constituencies are something that they view as their growing constituency. They view that the other side of of this, you know, group of of individuals are Hollywood, the news media minus Fox and the Wall Street Journal, uh, corporate America, increasingly corporate America and um, the education system, whether it's, you know, the kids going through the lower education or elites in the colleges. And, uh, you know, I think the way the media has portrayed Republicans is not accurate as to who they are. They're, they're trying to appeal to a different kind of voter. They're trying to steal Democratic constituencies. And if you believe the polling and, you know, Myra Flores's uh, election, in, in special election a couple of months ago, kind of proves the point. It, it's the second most Hispanic district in the country. Uh, she won with a pretty healthy margin. I think she's expected to win re-election when she runs again in November. Uh, it, it doesn't jive with the old conventional wisdom of the Republican Party being something that it just simply isn't anymore. And um, I, I think that's why people get you know, how to cover this Republican Party confused. Uh, th this reflexive idea that they're just going to run and do corporate tax cuts for corporate America and reward you know, a constituency that they view has left them behind. They, they're not big contributors anymore. If you if you look at corporate contributions to the Republican Party, uh, I'm sure it's dropped off a cliff. And Republicans have made up the difference through, you know, various fundraising ways. But corporate America is not not part of it. So um, I, I think their agenda next Congress will reward the people in the coalition that they think will bring them the majority. Well, yeah, and that's the big question, you know, whether this ends up actually translating into policy is very different than whether it's used sort of as a political wedge issue or as a sort of a, a football to appeal more to working class voters, then does it get turned into policy? And, and But even the posture is policy in and of itself. And I'm curious for your take on this, Sam, um, because it, it's very interesting to see how corporate America has responded to some of this backlash, which is not just to the point of your memo, isolated to base voting Republicans. There are a lot of independents who are just absolutely disgusted um, by the, the sort of corrupt social justice pandering that comes out of some of these corporations. We actually talked, we had a great segment with Ryan's colleague Lee Fong last week about how these corporations appropriate ESG to absolutely ludicrous ends. Um, and Sam, I'm curious if you, what your sense is about whether this is actually really, is this having any chilling effect on corporate America? America's sort of open embrace of ESG. Have your have the people you talked to on Capitol Hill noticed that from the business community? Have you noticed that from the business community that some people are are realizing 
this is starting to look really bad for us. This is going to hurt our market performance because our audience isn't interested in seeing this from us. It's not the cash cow that we thought it was. Have you noticed any of that? Yeah, yes, uh, 100%. ESG kind of has, you know, encapsulated this whole, this whole rift between corporate America and Republicans. If you look at the agenda that Republicans are going to pursue, they're, they're, and they've had these tasks for, task forces working all, all uh, spring and summer, and, and I think they're going to roll out an agenda that um, you know, kind of advances a lot of policies that, would, that, that they believe their constituencies that I, that I mentioned before would benefit from. There, there's no working group. There's no discussion about doing anything to help corporate America in any document I've ever seen. So I, I just I don't know that they're going to be punished. It doesn't say that. And I, I've not heard that. But they're certainly not a priority for a Republican majority. They're, they're going to focus on, you know, keeping the borders safe, law and order, parental control in schools, trying to, you know, do do something about inflation, gas prices. I think if there is, an, is a sector that that Republicans feel is aligned with them, it's the energy sector. And it's because of this ESG issue. ESG is everything to Republicans. You, you can find a pro-choice Republican. You, you can find a pro-gun control Republican in the House. You can't find a pro-ESG Republican. There, there is no such thing. <laughs> Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger don't even support it, is my guess. I, I haven't talked with them, but like it's unanimous. Not one Republican will support those policies that they think of, you know, run amok and caused inflation, caused unrest. You know, if they look, they look overseas to Sri Lanka and these other these other countries that have, you know, great ESG ratings, but you know the the presidential palaces are overthrown, and they they think ESG is is the cause of everything bad that's happening right now in America. Uh, so, what do you say to Democrats who say, "Look, we saw all of this rhetoric from Trump in 2016." He comes into office, he's going to beat up all the big, bad uh, corporations. And the way he beats them up is with like a six trillion dollar tax cut. Uh, it, it Was that the kind of last gasp of the Ryan wing of the party and that and that it's transforming into something different? Or uh, is is this just rhetoric that is being used to kind of appeal to working class voters? But when they actually get in power, it's going to be the same kind of, uh, you know, the Reagan descendants that we've known before. Yeah, I, I think you hit it, hit the nail on the head. I think that Ryan kind of corporate tax cut is, you know, a thing of the past. A, a lot of Republicans view that vote as as something they did that they missed an opportunity to reward constituencies that would actually support them in the future. You know, they gave these corporate corporate American you know businesses these, this tremendous tax cut, and and then you know a year later. You know, they've been on the receiving end uh, unfairly, in their opinion, of, you know, woke policies, um, PAC bans and, and all sorts of kind of decisions to move away from Republicans. So I think Republicans view kind of we did this for you and, and you've become a fair weather friend and, you know, shame on us for, you know, we're not going to make that mistake again. So I, I feel like that's where things are headed, that um that the Republicans today would rather spend the energy whipping a, a, a bill that gave a corp, uh, gave a tax cut to small businesses and entrepreneurs that are you know maybe struggling in COVID and and you know maybe less less incentivized to help some of these Fortune 500 companies that they feel have uh, you know picked a fight with them in, in their minds they they do feel bullied I know I know that sounds strange but they feel like th that that group of 
Hollywood, corporate executives, the news media, the education system, they have all the power and they're, they're ramming this agenda down the throats of people that, that are kind of powerless to stop them. And mm-hmm. they're, they're like out of their mind, kind of frustrated. And, you know, I, I think a Republican majority is a first step to reining it in. And I think there's gonna be a ton of oversight in, in those areas. Yep, hollowing out the country this, socially, yeah. culturally, and economically. Yeah, yeah, and this mid-sized business like victimization thing has been has been actually the backbone of the Republican Party since Goldwater. That's that's who that's who backed the Goldwater people. Like if the my if my pillow was a company in the fifties, that guy would have been a Goldwater well, guy. That's true. Um, <laughs> yet somehow corporate America is still dominated in the Reagan era. So I wouldn't count him out just yet. You know, yeah, if you look at like legislation that's come from Marco Rubio, proposals from Marco Rubio, Jim Banks, Josh Hawley, that's, this is serious anti-corporate uh, you know, legislative maneuvering. Um, so there's still this tug of war is still playing out. But uh, I think there's a, a glimmer of hope that, you know, the litmus test is if you get power again and you do corporate tax cuts, uh, it, you know, get out of the 2022 Republican Party. But that remains to be seen. Sam, Sam Godoldig, thank you so much as always. Great to see you guys, thanks. We'll be back with more Rising after this. But we have an important story to bring to you on labor issues and railroads. Joining us now to discuss are locomotive engineer and former Iowa State Representative Jeff Kurtz and editor-in-chief of The Real News Network, Max Alvarez. Thank you both for being here. Thanks, guys. All right, Max, I'm going to start with you because you've worked on the story over at the Real News Network. Um, Can you break down what folks should know about what's happening in this particular dispute? Ooh, baby. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll do my best um, because there's a whole lot here. And I guess uh, I first wanted to start by thanking you all for covering this because it's been a sorely undercovered issue. And I want to really shout out the great reporting that Mel Buer um, did at The Real News. Uh, I am kind of filling in for Mel right now um, because she is actually on assignment covering the case New Holland strike in uh, Iowa where United Auto Workers have been on strike for 70 days. So if you want a deep dive on this, go find Mel Buer's uh, report that we published last week at the Real News Network. In that report, Mel um, details how, you know, we are closer to a national rail shutdown right now than we've been in a very long time. We're talking about 115,000 workers who have been negotiating uh, uh, like they're they're part of these amalgamated unions that represent railroad workers, not just conductors and engineers, but signal callers, maintenance folks. A whole lot of people make the railroads run, and they have been negotiating with the amalgamated group that um, represents the different rail carriers for multiple years, and they have reached an impasse. Um, they actually had a government-run mediation board uh, to, that stepped in, and they couldn't reach uh, an agreement. And so the mediation board released both sides last month. We're now currently in a, what's called a cooling-off period that actually ends on Monday, and people are waiting to see if President Joe Biden will take the step to appoint an emergency presidential board uh, to essentially step in, mediate between the railroad carriers and the railroad workers, offer recommendations. Each side has the capacity to reject those recommendations, after which point there will be another 30-day cooling-off period that then clears the way for railroad workers to actually strike 
or railroad companies to initiate lockouts, right? And so there are a lot of steps that have to be cleared in order for a rail strike to happen in this country because rail labor relations on the railroads are not governed by the National Labor Relations Act. They are governed by the railway labor, um, by the railway uh, uh, labor act right which has a lot of other different um, provisions given the national security concerns and supply chain concerns that the railroads uh, entail so on and so forth so we are at this impasse and now people are wondering how did we get here well the thing that i would want to stress and jeff can can expand on this is that this did not happen overnight what railroad workers have been telling me over and over again is that this is a long brewing problem that you know cannot be boiled down to the sort of supply chain disruptions that we're talking about in the media right everyone knows that the war in ukraine that covid 19 extreme weather events exacerbated by climate change have hurt the supply chain of course we all know that but the thing that people aren't talking about is that corporate greed at the hands of the rail carriers who are raking in billions of dollars in profit has driven the supply chain into the ground because it has driven workers who make the supply chain run into the ground. That is what we need to understand here. Because right now, as the supply chain is a mess, the railroad companies are trying to say that there's a you know a labor shortage and there are these like outside forces like the war in Ukraine, yada yada yada, that they can't control for. What they're not telling you is that collectively the rail carriers have made this is a self-inflicted wound. They have created the labor crisis that they are now experiencing. Since 2015, the rail carriers have collectively eliminated 30% of their collective workforce. They've laid off 45,000 workers since 2015, and now all of this is coming to a head, and we're at a real crisis point, but pe the blame should be pointed at the rail companies right now. Hmm. And, and Jeff, since this was such a long time brewing, in your mind, what demands could be met that would both equal a, a short-term solution, but then also what, what is the long-term solution here? Well, short-term, one of, one of the things that really needs to be addressed is worker safety. The uh, attendance and availability policies of, of all the, the Class 1 railroads is draconian. But uh, with the, the BNSF, they have reached new lows. This high-vis policy, I talked to Max back in February, and we talked about the, the fact that this was going to lead to physical, uh, physical and emotional problems with these uh, people that work out there as engineers and conductors because 100% uh, of their time, people are talking about uh, the BNSF high-vis uh, occupying 90% of these people's time. It's more like 100%. And... Uh, what that does, and we, we've got the science to prove it, is it will uh, impact them as far as fatigue, which can cause a whole raft of physical problems, physical and uh, emotional problems, but also stress. You get into things like allostatic load, allostatic overload, uh, because of the extreme stress of always, always being on the point, of always being available for service, going to work or being away from home. And, and Jeff, I'm also curious um, as to whether the strength or lack thereof 
uh, of the union itself? Is it strong enough to get these demands met, or has it been weakened by different legislation and all of these other issues? Is that contributing? Um, you know, just the struggles within the union itself has that contributed at all to uh, the the inability, or not the inability, but I guess the the continuation of uh, this this ongoing struggle to be heard by the company? Well, it's. Um, it's not so much the legislation as uh, our ju judicial system. Uh, originally, when the high biz policy came out, uh, the BLET and Smart TD had uh, uh, polled their members and were ready to strike. Uh, the BNSF took the uh, two unions to court and they got a, a ruling that uh, you would have to see to believe. But essentially what it said is these guys would have to stay working. They couldn't participate in anything like informational pickets. Uh, and uh, the, the company unilaterally can, could uh, uh, institute this policy in violation of the 2008 uh, Rail Safety Improvement Act. Um, so on, on one hand, you've got the carriers not having to uh, follow federal uh, legislation and on the other hand, any move that the, the union made, they were going to be penalized. So this is this is not the unions being strong or weak or anything else. It's how we weaken the, the, the union position. And, and, and Max, I wanted to pick up on something you said about the, the companies engaging in thousands of layoffs over the years and then whining about not having enough workers. So today, I'm curious, and, and maybe Jeff, if you have thoughts on this as well, are these companies actually hiring? Because a lot of times you'll have companies say that they're really <laughs> frustrated, it's so sad, they can't find workers, but they're not making much of an effort to actually bring workers in. So if you're a worker today and you and you say, you know what, I'd, I'd love a union job on a railroad. This like the, the, the hours do look tough, but this beats what I'm doing now. Uh, I want to, I'm going to apply. If those people apply, are there actually a lot of openings that they're hiring for, or is this kind of smoke and mirrors to just try to squeeze more out of the workforce that they have? It's a great question. I think like it's uh, in large part smoke and mirrors, but even it's it's not even um, kind of smoke and mirrors. It's just like you can post, uh, you know, that you're hiring for these jobs. But the fact of the matter is, and I've talked to Jeff Kurtz about this uh, on The Real News, I've talked to Ron Kamenko from Railroad Workers United about this on The Real News as well. The thing that people need to understand is that people are not hiring out on the railroads. They're not taking those jobs because they are hearing about how railroad workers are being run into the ground. They are seeing these mass layoffs. As we speak, one of the reasons that the rail carriers and the rail unions are at an impasse is because Again, like I said, there's a long brewing problem. They, the rail carriers have been trying for decades to reduce the crews that are uh, operating these mile long trains that are super heavy, super unwieldy, very dangerous you know, to operate um, because the rail companies have been piling more work onto fewer workers. Um, you know, They are trying to reduce the crews on those trains from two people to one. So imagine you are one person in charge of that whole massive vehicle. Um, and, and like if something goes wrong, you have no one else to, to turn to. So people who are thinking about taking jobs on the railroads are seeing the mass amount of folks who have been laid off. 
the mass amount of folks who are either fleeing to um, passenger service as refugees and they are foregoing, you know, the years of accrued benefits and seniority that they built up in the freight service, or they're leaving the industry altogether and they are not advising their children, their neighbors, their friends to get jobs on the railroads. Again, really highlighting that this is a self-inflicted wound by the rail carriers who are now complaining that they can't, you know, like keep their their, um, you know, uh, operations running. Um, but you know, it's because of things like this um, policy that Jeff mentioned, the the high vis attendance policy at BNSF railway that they are seeing like you know this isn't worth you know like me essentially being on call 24 7 railroad engineers and conductors by definition do not have a set schedule because there are delays on the rail you basically get a call in the middle of the night saying okay your train's coming now you got to get to the terminal hop on there and because of those derailments and delays and and you know shifts on the rail lines you may like be stuck out you know in a, a motel in a strip mall for uh, days, you know, like waiting just to get back home. It's a very demanding job. Like you said, Ryan, it does pay well, but right now people are saying this isn't worth it. And the last thing I would say to really like underscore what, what Jeff said earlier, right, is that 17,000 rail workers represented by BLET and Smart TD were prepared to strike over BNSF's draconian attendance policy uh, in Febu on February 1st. And a U.S. district court blocked them from striking, saying that a strike would do irreparable harm to a BNSF's business. Also, BNSF is owned by um, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. FYI. So the judge said that it would cause irreparable harm to their business and to the supply chain. And um, thus, that was the justification for stopping workers from striking. But the judge allowed this high vis attendance policy to go into effect. And now, six months later, what workers in BNSF are saying is that because of this attendance policy, the supply chain has been irreparably harmed because workers are being run into the ground. They're quitting in record numbers. Trains are laying idle. All while BNSF and the other rail carriers are using Ukraine and COVID to blame the supply chain's disruptions while they are basically stuffing cash into their pockets. This is what looting looks like. Jeff, do you have any final thoughts on Ryan's question there? Uh, yes, a couple. And uh, to correct Max, uh, mile-long trains are a pipe dream. The, the <laughs> trains right now are running three miles long or longer. And we could go into uh, uh, several shows about how dangerous that is, not only to the employees, but to the general public. But as far as Ryan's question about, uh, are the, the rail carriers serious about hiring? This is, is my take on it. I, I just talked to a guy two days ago about this. Uh, he said that BNSF in, our, in, in the terminal in Fort Madison, Iowa, uh, has a class coming up. I believe it's either next week or the week after. They've got one person in that class. So you tell me how serious they are. Meanwhile, uh, from another thing I've been hearing, over 2,000 people have quit since uh, the advent of, of uh, high vids on the BNSF. And uh, we, we talked about the emotional and physical um, uh, parts of this. About a month, month and a half ago, within a three-week period, we had three people in this area die. Uh, hmm. Actually, two people died on a locomotive, one from heart failure and another one uh, with a stroke. Another person committed suicide. 
a major contributing factor to that is the the uh, high vis policy. So no, they're they're not really serious. You know, I think what we really need is a former McKinsey consultant to take over the Department of Transportation and just figure all of this out for us. Surely, his experience should help us put all of these pieces of the puzzle together. Max, and he Jeff, could do something. He could. Buttigieg could actually win people over right now. I mean, I'm again, I'm I'm the editor in chief of a nonprofit. I can't like advocate either way. But as Jeff and other rail workers have said. Je uh, Pete Buttigieg, this could be your moment. You could rise up and do something about this. Same with Secretary Marty Walsh. Like, they can do something, but as of right now, they have not. They're too busy talking to the executives, uh, so we'll remains to be seen. Uh, thank you both, Max and Jeff, for your time and your insights. Thank you for covering this. Absolutely. We'll be back with more Rising after this. President Biden is in Jerusalem today and delivered a series of Biden-esque remarks from start to finish. I want to read a one here, uh, Dan Cohen from Mint Press News, and get your get your reaction to it. See what it says about um, what it what it tells us about Biden's approach to the region. So he said this standing in East Jerusalem. He said, "Quote: The background of my family is Irish American, and we have a long history not fundamentally unlike the Palestinian people." with Great Britain and their attitude toward Irish Catholics over the years for 400 years. This isn't the first time that Biden has has connected his own uh, Irish heritage to a kind of support for oppressed and struggling people. He's, he's done it in the past when it comes to the question of, of immigration because his family fled, you know, during the during the potato famine, which, you know, no doubt he considers, you know, the fault of British policy. Uh, so how how do you square kind of Biden's approach to the Israel-Palestinian uh, question with this uh, stated affinity for the struggle of the Palestinian people? Well, to me, it's pretty hypocritical because Biden has continued the same U.S. policy, which has been total support for Israeli apartheid and permanent subjugation of millions of Palestinians in the West Bank and uh, in the Gaza Strip, who live under what is an Israeli military dictatorship, where they have no rights, can be imprisoned, tortured, assassinated at any point. Um, and so it's just sheer hypocrisy of Biden to even try to express some kind of sympathy for the Palestinian struggle when he, uh, the United States, with Biden now as the president, lording over uh, uh, giving total support to Israel lording over the Palestinians. It's always interesting to watch establishment Democrats sort of do their gymnastics on the, the question of Israel, which I'm on the other side probably as both of you have, but it's it, he made this remark. We've been covering the killing of Shireen Abu Akla, just egregious um, and you know not covered well by a lot of the, the generally sort of pro-Israel people. And he made he was referring to the killing um, and just made a, a very Biden-esque gaffe, but a, I think a particularly uh, hurtful one. We can roll that clip. The United States has suffered loss as well, including the killing of Shireen Abu Al-Kali. Oh. 
Oh, man, that is a tough one. It's the same as when he said yesterday that we would, uh, not yesterday, earlier this week, that we would honor the Holocaust, the same level of just, like, unbelievable walking into uh, just just terrible statements. I don't want to read too much into what happened, you know, what he was actually thinking and what came out of his mouth. But I do want to ask, Dan, um, how Biden's mistakes on, on this level are they, uh, when he goes on these trips and he makes these kinds of mistakes, are they interfering, you think, with his, his ability to get anything done when he's trying to talk to leaders in Palestine, when he's going to Saudi Arabia, which he said you know, he, would, he would not be talking to Mohammed bin Salman? Um, does anybody basically take him seriously? Um, or do they think maybe somebody else is, is running the, the country? Well, I think it's pretty obvious to everyone that this is kind of an emperor wears no clothes situation where Biden's mental faculties are clearly degraded to the point where he just said Shireen Abu al-Qaeda is what it sounded like to me, which, Mm -hmm. you know, if the U.S. is trying to win hearts and minds of the Palestinians, then obviously that's a major failure. But that's really just kind of uh, the cherry on top of of U.S. policy that you know, pretty much any Palestinian who's not on the payroll of the Palestinian Authority, uh, which is supported by the U.S. and Israel, understands. They understand reality that the U.S. is responsible for their situation with unbridled support to Israel. Um, So it's I mean, I can only um, you can only imagine how the media would have been reacting had Trump made that kind of gaffe. But I think it's going to be another one of those things that Biden says something incredibly inappropriate and embarrassing because he just should not be in this position and it's going to be overlooked glossed over by the national media largely Hmm. i also want to get your take on his upcoming trip uh to to saudi to saudi arabia where he will uh, you know he he came up with this compromise way that he's going to sit down with mohammed bin salman by allowing him to be in the room with uh the with the king and with some of the king's other advisors but there's been a you know significant reorientation over the last several years of of middle eastern uh power dynamics with the linking together of of israel's you know saudi you know israel saudi arabia and the united arab emirates effectively and so i i, I want to get your take on on the, the structural reasons behind that and if to me I'm, I'm wondering what you think it has to do with the way that the u.s has you know pretty much you know effectively sanctioned a lot of the other kind of oil producing countries around the world, whether it's whether it's Iran, whether it's Venezuela and recently, of course, uh, Russia as well. You then you then wind up with this situation where a client state uh, ends up having leverage over over the the empire. You know, the United States developed its Middle Eastern strategy so that it would have access to resources, you can agree or disagree with whether that's a moral thing to do. That was the thing that they did. But now that they're the only place that they can get resources, it feels like Saudi Arabia feels like it has the leverage over the United States rather than uh, the other way around. What, what's, what, what do you think is going on now in the region? Yeah, I mean, obviously, energy supplies are in crisis since February when, when the Ukraine crisis really kicked off and and the U.S. cut off Russian oil supplies. And we've seen um, gas prices overall, you know, inflation skyrocket, but gas prices skyrocket in general. And so that's what, you know, Americans are dealing with. And so Biden is going to Saudi Arabia with that in mind. 
Um, and I think, you know, the broader picture for the U.S. is that it's about um, great power competition. It's about uh, combating Chinese and Russian influence in the Middle East um, and really throughout the world. And so the Biden administration, Biden has really put himself and the Democrats in general, I think, have put themselves in a very difficult position because they were uh, during the campaign, they were denouncing Mohammed bin Salman and saying, you know, um, that that he was a pariah and Saudi Arabia was a pariah state. And now they are basically going back and saying, well, we we essentially need you. There was a huge deal made by the U.S. over the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, which regardless of what happened, it's obvious to me that the U.S. didn't make such a huge deal of that because of the immorality of killing um, a, a, a journalist, considering the U.S. is basically underwritten, uh, is basically totally fine with um, killing uh, the killing of Shireen Abu Abu Akleh. Uh, you know, there's there's no punishment there or the imprisonment and um, extradition of Julian Assange that the United States is is seeking. So by doing that, by portraying Saudi Arabia as this uh, pariah state and now basically going back in order to reassert itself and, and have these relations. Um, and uh, Saudi Arabia is now in a in a more powerful position and it can look to um, other countries like Russia. I mean, we know that Saudi Arabia has under under Mohammed bin Salman has has warm relationships uh, with with President Putin. And, you know, that's that's a major source. That's a major uh, point of leverage that it has um, that the United States is not the only game in town. And so I think the real point of this trip, as I was just listening to the the um, the press gaggle on Air Force One while Biden is en route to Saudi Arabia, and they were saying we have to plant the American flag in the region and we don't want to you know, pull back. We need to recalibrate. So it's all about. Um, recalibrating what is essentially just American empire in the region. And, you know, for all of the talk about morality and and uh, and Saudi Arabia being some kind of pariah state, the U.S. continues to underwrite this genocidal war on Yemen. And there's no and there's no talk about that, even though Biden was praised for saying he would end it, which he never did. So so really, it's just all about politics. There's no morality or, or anything that comes into it. I think, I think we tried to plant our flag in, in the region, uh, you know, some years ago. Uh, and Dan, I wanted to ask, you've been, you've been working on a documentary, um, and it's coming out, I believe, actually today over at Mint Press. What can you tell us about it? Well, the, the documentary is called Gaza Fights Back, and it chronicles the May tw 2021 um, attack on the Gaza Strip, the fourth in 12 years. And it shows how actually the, the armed resistance forces, the armed wing of Hamas, really changed the game and were able to intervene in Jerusalem as opposed to just, you know, try to defend Gaza um, from from Israeli attacks. And so um, it's it's got some really unique interviews. And, and uh, we, you know, we talked to a lot of survivors um, people who lost loved ones, family members. So I think it'll be a real contribution to understanding what's happening uh, in the country and, and even how it affects the region. Sounds good. Well, Dan, thank you so much for your time and for your insights. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. We'll be back with more Rising right after this. 
So a child credit tax plan that Senator Mitt Romney has been working on, also sponsored by uh, Senator Richard Burr and Senator Steve Daines, um, has been getting more traction this week. He's been working on various child tax credit proposals over the course of this year. He introduced one uh, back in January and February that we covered. It was initially criticized um, by Senators Marco Rubio and Mike Lee, who said basically there's nothing conservative um, about creating a new entitlement, which is essentially what it would have done. And this new bill um, actually does the same thing. It's, according to Romney, budget neutral. It's, um, it, it applies. It has a, a work requirement that was intended to sort of get Marco Rubio and uh, Mike Lee sort of to, say, to, to satisfy them, although I don't know that it has. They have their own plan um, that I imagine they'll be sticking with. Uh, so under this proposed plan, the families get $350 a month for each child five years old and younger. Um, so that's about $4,200 a year, then $250 per month per children uh, that are between the ages of 6 and 17, totaling about $3,000 a year. Then the benefits are limited up to six kids, and you need to earn $10,000 in the previous year to qualify for full benefits. It continues to be referred to as a tax credit. Um, the same thing is true of the, the earlier Romney plan. But essentially what it is, um, is is cash payments. And I think it's worth us talking about here, particularly because because it's worth sort of understanding where both the right and the left are on these, these difficult questions. The Biden cash plan um, was popular. It was phased out. It doesn't exist anymore. It did cut child poverty. There are estimates that this would cut child poverty. This didn't uh, satisfy the left. They didn't like the $10,000 work requirement um, that was intended to you know, maybe be persuasive to people like Marco Rubio and Mike Lee. So all that is to say, Ryan, what do you make of the sort of Republican tug of war over tax credits or cash payments basically for, for kids? Well, uh, the reason that the the Biden one uh, cut child poverty is because it you know, w didn't have that work requirement and it was refundable. In other words, the the people who are in poverty and particularly in deep poverty, you know, saw a significant benefit from it, and by getting those you know monthly cash payments that pulled that pulled them out of poverty, like that. It's you know when, when it comes to poverty, it's a pretty simple calculation because we define poverty by a certain threshold of income. And if and if you manage to uh, provide income to two people above that threshold, you get them out of poverty like that. That's that's how the Biden plan was able to reduce poverty. It was initially estimated to reduce it by 50 percent. I think it ended up reducing it by what, 30 percent or so. Uh, but, you know, within that within that first year. But if you don't do those two things, uh, if you if you don't take care of the people that are in the most poverty with this program, then it's not going to reduce poverty. And so I'm curious how, how serious you think Republicans are about negotiating with Democrats on this question and you know, whether or not that's something that they'll give on. Because right now, uh, you know, under their current plan, some people would be better off. And it's nice to see them talking about, you know, refund, you know, the monthly child tax payments. But something like seven million poor people would be actually worse off under this plan, which is not something like why like why like the world's awful enough as it is why are we trying to make it worse for 7 million poor people so yeah i mean i obviously come to that with a completely different framework which is that uh, over time 
the entitlement system does erode communities and it erodes the work ethic. I know you completely disagree with that, but that is my answer to the question, which is that ultimately um, developing reliance on the federal government is not a healthy thing for either people or communities. And so some work requirement, I don't think it should be um, astronomical and $10,000 really isn't. Um, although I've heard complaints that you know there, there are grandparents involved sometimes who are getting tax credits, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm all for sort of fixes on questions like that, but I do share the concerns of you know, Senators Rubio and Lee that work is essential um, in situations like this because it's not healthy. It hasn't been historically healthy in uh, different communities with different programs. If you look at it, we probably disagree on the on the data there, um, but that's sort of my perspective. And you know, one thing that always frustrates me, um, I'm not from a red state, I'm from a you know, purple-ish state. Um, but like, there are voices of working class people that I think the left doesn't always give enough attention to. And Orrin Cass's group, American Compass, put together a really interesting sort of like booklet of uh, just essays from normal working class people around the country. And one thing you hear in there and you hear in general is that um, you know, not every working class person wants money from the government um, or thinks that that is the best way to approach child poverty. So while there's data showing that it eats away at child poverty in the short term, what happens in the long term is a really different question. Um, and that's absolutely my concern. Uh, so that that's kind of where like I'm, I don't think that this is a, a great plan. I don't think it's super smart. But to your question about are Republicans serious, I mean, Marco Rubio and Mitt Romney are both people that will jump on bills with Democrats. And Marco Rubio has been working with, I think, Kirsten Gillibrand on a veterans bill. Um, Romney has plenty of good relationships with Democrats. I could see something like really slimmed down um, coming together, but it would probably be on the Romney side, not on the Rubio side, would be my guess. No, and I think it's true that like most people in general, you know, don't don't want government handouts like they people want to feel like, you know, they're they're doing this on their own. One one of the beauties of this child tax credit is that it, in many ways it is their it is their own money, just a child tax credit getting refunded to them early, earlier uh, for the poorest of the poor that, you know, they would rather not be in that situation. But when they find themselves in that situation, they'd rather have the refundable tax credit uh, than than not have the refundable tax credit, and I think we make, we you know when when we start putting these work requirements in, we're making policy for you know healthy, able-bodied people, and and you, people will try to find somebody, uh, you know, who is you know because they're getting this payment now they're now they're not now they're not uh, you know going out and looking looking for a job anymore. But in a country of 330 million people, uh, you're gonna have you know several million people. Who are just incapable of of getting by in this society, like whether and that's not going to be necessarily for their entire lives, but for long stretches of their lives, they're they they just and even no, no matter what you do with the work requirements, because with with TANF, which started in Wisconsin as a kind of little uh, project there and then went national, uh, you they they really whittled it down to okay, just please just show up at this government trailer for twenty hours a week and and. And, and punch some keys on something. And like, they, they were just trying, they were like creating these like make work programs for people in, in the end. But a lot of people who have the, who are going through mental crises or, or mentally ill or, uh, or have substance abuse issues, there's not, there's not something that they can do. So then the question is what, what about them? Like, yeah. what is the, what, 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 are, what is the plan there? 
Yeah, and I just, our government has not been historically good at administering these benefits in a way that is healthy for people, that is like actually short term. And the bigger question, of course, like actually one of my big problems with this is I think it's a subsidy for corporations essentially to stop having to worry about providing childcare and providing adequate in incomes for people to be able to cover the insane costs of childcare. And, you know, I think probably that's part of what Republican senators hear and then get interested in. I don't think that's true of Rubio, who actually worked with Democrats to get the uh, refundable and doubled child tax credit into that Trump tax bill. Um, but I do think, you know, Republican interest in this, I wonder how much of it is actually coming from an interest in corporations, because I do really see this as, uh, and maybe they, they think it'll raise their taxes over time. They're probably already aware that that's going to happen. But it, it takes the burden off of their shoulders. And that's get back to a, a more systemic question that you and I absolutely agree on, which is that our, our government is prefers to do band-aids that they can campaign on instead of actually improving the system to the point where people feel like they have dignity and agency and can provide what Blake Masters talked about in our interview with him. You should be able to have a stable middle-class job um, with one parent and one parent can stay home and raise their family if they want to. One parent is in the workforce. You should be able to. There was a time in this country when you could, and you can't anymore because our government continues to uh, just pad the system with Band-Aids that are ultimately good for corporations, but not for workers or families. Right, and the problem is that once you see any wage increases taking hold across the economy, the Federal Reserve comes in and smashes it to pieces and, and tries to create a recession to drive those wages back down. So. If we're not going to allow wages to rise, then and we want people's incomes to go up, then we got to figure something else out. Yeah, talk to me about that, Senator from Bain Capital, um, and talk to me about you know the the system itself before asking us to all. Uh, I think you know automate cash payments to to families on a monthly basis. And, and Ryan, you're right. You know that's that's not what most people want anyway. Uh, so this is a, it's a story that I think we'll continue to follow. We've, we follow it on the left, we follow it on the right. Um, but it's, it's really interesting, um, you know, just as a, something that families are particularly in need of, childcare and, and extra help, extra money, whether it comes from the government or somewhere else is a different question. But uh, we know it's important and we'll stay on the story uh, and we'll have more rising for you right after this. We sit around and we talk about these things and we, we want to give this false equivalence to Democrats and Republicans. That is not where we are right now. Republicans are doing something that is very dangerous to our society. And we have to acknowledge that. We have to acknowledge that as Americans. We must acknowledge that as journalists, because if we don't, we're not doing our jobs. We cannot sit here and pretend like, well, you, Republicans, it's a, cut them a break. Let's, we want to hear whatever. They have a lot to answer for in this moment. A lot to answer for what happened with the former president of the United States, why they allowed his antics to go on for so long, why he is not accountable, why they go along with it and don't say anything. They've got to answer for that, why they are, whether you agree with abortion rights or not, why they have taken back a right that was, what the, you know, that was granted to uh, American women for 50 years. They have to answer for those questions. If they come here on CNN, they must answer for that. If they go on MSNBC, they must answer for that. If they go on ABC, they must answer for that. And they cannot expect to be coddled when they go on to a news organization or if they step in front of a crowd of supporters. And so... Yes, uh, Republicans are so coddled when they step in front of a news organization. Ryan, what's your reaction to that clip? 
I mean, it seems like common sense, right? It, like, a news organization is not supposed to coddle uh, newsmakers when they have them on their program. Uh, oh, absolutely this... not. But Republicans aren't coddled by the, the news media. No, certainly not by CNN or MSNBC. I'm not sure what he's talking about there. Like, is there some history of CNN coddling Republicans no. when they come on? Or it's does he this, mean he wants to yell at Rick Santorum? Or uh, Rick Santorum's not a contributor anymore, is he? No, I don't think so. But he, it's he, he, they have it's like this this um, media fantasy of what actually happens. And what's really irritating to me about what Don Lemon just said is that he, he's not just talking about Republican lawmakers. He's also talking about Republican voters. He's talking about people who voted for Donald Trump. And it's one thing if you're just talking about politicians. But we know that's not the case because we have that clip of Don Lemon giggling along with Rick Wilson when he was mocking the accents of uh, Trump voters, and I forget who else was on that segment. It was just grotesque, but it was sort of a perfect moment uh, that crystallized where the media stands on this. And so what Don Lemon is doing um, is something that's really important because when he says we are not operating on two equal planes here, right? Like the Republican Party is doing something so dangerous that we can't do both sides equivalency in journalism. Well, actually, here's why that is still extremely important if you have this pretense of neutrality as CNN anchor, or I'm sorry, yeah, CNN anchor Don Lemon does. He's not a host. He's an anchor. If you still want to have the pretense of neutrality, you have to acknowledge that on the right, they see, for instance, the uh, pro-choice left as doing something that is way beyond moral equivalency. They see having a witness sit in front of Senator Hawley um, and say that men can get pregnant and then put that ideology into policies in the school system as something that is, quote, so dangerous to take Don Lemon's turn that it t- term um, that it doesn't have an equivalency. So it's to say that we must reevaluate our standards of neutrality to do X, Y, and Z, it goes both ways. But Don Lemon, as somebody who is neutral, who purports to have the sense of neutrality, only wants to do it in one direction. And you and I, Ryan, come down on these issues on different sides openly. We say what we think. We don't pretend to just be reading dry copy as though it is the voice of God and necessarily the truth. But he does. And that's why I think what he says is so incredibly dangerous. It's an interesting point about that that witness. Uh, that's So on, on the one hand, I'm, I'm tempted to say this is a Berkeley, I'm pretty sure it was a Berkeley professor. That Berkeley Law was, Professor, yeah. Berkeley, Berkeley Law Professor. And on, on the one hand, that's a Berkeley Law Professor. That's not the president that's not the senate but on on the other hand you know she she does you know stand in for a a kind of rising segment of of the democratic party when it comes to the the culture fights but when it when it comes to that kind of material fights that uh the sanders wing the elizabeth warren wing you know really rose in the 2010s uh push pushing for it you know they they've been marginalized um to to the extent that uh you know this the squad has you know the squad has you know which followed on from Sanders has also been you know effectively marginalized and i think part of that is that cnn msnbc the the kind of le- left of center media apparatus really rallied behind the you know the, the the kind of clinton wing the centrist wing of the party while incorporating the 
the kind of cultural critique that that Hillary Clinton used to kind of combat mm -hmm. the the Sanders wing. Whereas on the right, something something different is happening. And once the Tea Party rose in 2010, Fox News and the conservative ecosystem very much you know followed suit and then and then led that kind of Tea Party revolution, which then evolved into uh, the, the Trump and which now evolving into Trumpism and has an annihilated what was left of the kind of traditional GOP. And so I think the traditional Democratic Party is holding on to power a lot more effectively than the traditional GOP, which which does mean that there's something different going on in the two sides. But I take your point about the, the cultural question on the left. Yeah, but this, yeah, that, and I think what you just said is actually the perfect segue into what's underlying all of this, because the reason there was a shift in the conservative media ecosystem, media ecosystem, the Republican ecosystem around the years of the Tea Party is because there were smart people who realized, for cynical reasons in some cases, um, that the Tea Party was not about limited government. The Tea Party was about people culturally feeling, um, as that Obama quote from, what was it, 2007 or 2008, um, that they were being being looked down on for, quote, clinging to their guns, their gods, and their religion. Uh, I'm paraphrasing it. That stuff was going, was becoming very visceral. And Charles Murray sort of documented what was happening and coming apart um, and put the social science behind things that people were feeling in this sort of hazy sense. But it was, it was acutely um, noticed that as we started sorting along these, uh, these, these sort of socioeconomic lines into the super zips that you can talk about and into areas um, that are disenfranchised, that don't have um, the same level of social capital, that when, when that hit the, with the Tea Party and then continued into the Trump years, it was because people felt like they were being looked down on and lied to. And frankly, they were. Um, and whether the political outcome of that is healthy is a different question. But Don Lemon is creating more of it. When you say things like this, you alienate people who have been alienated by you and the corporation you work for for decades. And so for him to to wax sanctimoniously about democracy and healing the country is like repulsive because he sat and laughed when you know they were mocking Trump voters as toothless, rude idiots um, and dehumanizing them. So it, it, I just have absolutely no patience for this from Don Lemon. It's completely disgusting. And my understanding of that Tea Party backlash is that Obama's election, a black president, was really central to it. But I'm curious how much of a role you think that played. Because, you know, and for, for a decade leading into that, you kept seeing people talking about how, you know, a majority of the country is going to be non-white uh, in, you know, in X, in X year. Uh, and so uh, then you have a black president and then you have the Tea Party. And I and I think that that kind of also fits with what you were saying, that they, this feeling of people that were were losing some sense of the, of the country. What role do you think that just Obama, the existence of Obama played? Yeah, I, I wouldn't. Uh deny that some part of it was racial, although I think it, that part of it was overstated. And we learned that in uh, 2016, when so many of the white working class voters who supported Barack Obama in the Rust Belt then voted for Donald Trump. And that actually was a pretty decent chunk of the electorate. In fact, uh, a chunk that would have been big enough to swing what was a very, very, very close popular vote and then into the Electoral College. So I, I don't deny that that played a role. Um, but I think also, especially now, if you're looking at like Myra Flores's election down in the Rio Grande Valley, 
if you talk to her and if you talk to her voters, they probably would say something really similar, that what they recognize in most of our major institutions that are run not by economic leftists, but by cultural leftists, they would say they feel alienated. Um, and, and they don't like, for instance, being called Latinx. They don't like you know, being at a school where they're having these locker room battles, where they might want a very compassionate, nuanced policy, but they don't want to be told that what they see and know with their own two eyes is wrong because that feels Orwellian. Um, so I, I, I just, it's very hard to take this seriously from CNN, even though I have all of these concerns. Actually, we discussed this in an earlier block, and this fits perfectly with it. All of these concerns we talked about in your radar um, about the way I think Republicans have played with fire in talking about what happened in 2020, it is very difficult for the incentives of Republican politicians because they don't want to be, they don't want to look like they're on the side of the media that does dehumanize their constituents and their voters and even their own constituents and voters, people who would have voted Democrat um, that are now you know, shifting because things have just gotten to such a, an awful boiling point. Yeah, and they're leaving us no shortage of things to talk about. That's that's for sure. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, don't forget and to stick around, and we'll have more of it soon, no doubt. There, that, that's for sure. Uh, that is for sure. Well, don't forget on that note to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen well on the go, we're also available wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, Thanks Ryan. Everybody, have a great weekend. See you next week. Happy Rising Fridays. Have a great weekend, everyone.